Today we're going to be dealing with a subject uh, that I think is a reflection of the song that we just sang. Is Christ worthy? Well, we've already said in the song he's worthy of everything, but is he worthy to be the one who possesses your supreme affection? And as the song we just sang responded, he is. Lately, the focus of my attention has been what is essential, what is fundamental to being a fully devoted disciple of Christ. Now, obviously, my interest in that is born out of the primary mandate of the church. So many of you are familiar with it, but why don't we look at it in the Bible in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. I trust that you have the hinges on your Bible well oiled because we're going to look at several passages, or at least you know how to get to them quickly in whatever device you use to do that. But in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we have Christ just moments before his ascension into heaven and ultimately his glorification. He has met with his apostles on a place up there in Galilee as he appointed. And these represent the final words of Christ before he went into heaven. So you know that these words are very, very important. Matter of fact, they are so important, as I mentioned earlier, that they do make up the fundamental priority of God's church on earth. Otherwise, it would have been better for him to save us and to take us into glory. But he left us here, saved as we are, redeemed as we are, because we have a mission. And what is that mission? Well, Christ said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a lot packed into this statement. The term make disciples is your primary imperative in this great commission. It's the mission statement, if you will. Implicit in this mandate is that those who place their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation and give evidence of this newfound faith by being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, begin, begin a lifelong process of learning the principles that have been taught by their new master. They are to become disciples. The term disciple comes from the Greek word mathathes, it is descriptive of a student who places himself or herself under the instruction, under the tutelage of their master teacher. That word disciple was one of the common words used in the New Testament to describe those who are genuine believers. And it's important that you understand that there really isn't any, different, any difference between a person who says, I am a Christian and I am a disciple. They are to be one and the same. But it is interesting to note that in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, the word disciple is used 264 times. 
whereas the term Christian is only found three times in the entire New Testament. Now, based on Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, discipleship is content-driven. The curriculum of a disciple is the teachings of Jesus. And this is not an exercise in the development of an intellectual enlightenment. It is not for them to know theoretically the teachings of Christ. Did you notice what he said? Teaching them to observe. It's application directed. Yes, you teach them the principles that Christ has presented to us, but it's with the intent of application. This is the objective of the disciple. It's to help them to understand how they might insert this into the context of everyday life. So really, discipleship is the art of passing on divine truth and its application to life. It's passing on one's love for the truth, one's desire to know that truth, to protect that truth, defend that truth, and to live that truth. And since this task is overwhelming through natural efforts, our Lord promises them his enabling presence at the end of that verse. Did you notice that? That presence of the Lord that makes what seems to be impossible, possible. He said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. As you do this, as you make disciples, I will enable you along the way. I have a youth pastor friend said he uses this end of verse 20 as the reason why he never flies in an airplane because the promise of Christ is, lo, I will be with you always. That's uh, an incorrect interpretation. One thing that is true about Christ's school of discipleship is this, there are no graduates. It doesn't matter what degree you have in a seminary. It doesn't matter how long you have been studying the Bible. You are a disciple of Christ. If you're born again, you're a disciple of Christ as long as you are breathing or until that day when Christ comes to take you home. And it's also necessary that you understand this demand that Christ, we're going to study some of his requirements, these costs that he places upon us, a necessary prerequisite to being able to apply these things, to being able to have a desire or a value for these things, is for you to have new life in Christ. In other words, the cost of discipleship, the requirements of being a disciple, are impossible for the natural man. The person who does not know Jesus Christ the person who does not have new life in Christ. You see, new life in Christ is a prerequisite for living for Christ. You can't do these things because some of these things, one of the things we're going to finish the message with, I might put into the category of extreme discipleship, except for the fact that if you are new in Christ, if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the Word to guide you, you are able to do these things. But you must know Christ. You must have a relationship with Christ. Without the conversion of the soul, 
there would be an absent of, absence of your interest, your values, and your capabilities to live for the Lord in this new way. And another thing I want to make sure you understand, when we look at some of these requirements of a disciple, these requirements are not to be pursued. Now get this, watch this, it's important. They are not to be pursued in order to get saved. They're not to be pursued in order to gain the love of Christ. They are not to be pursued in order to gain the mercy of God or a right standing with God. You know why? You got all of those things at your point of entrance into the faith. You do these things, you abide by these things, listen to me, because you love the Lord. And as a demonstration, motivated by this love for Christ, you're compelled to submit to the standards that he has for us in his word. So I began to look through the Gospels. This is a while ago. And I began to just note the words of Christ, just him, as he describes what a disciple should be. By the way, that's another key issue. We are not to look to the world and ask them what we as Christians should be. We are not to look to the world and say, what should be our values as believers in Christ? We need to turn to the Master. We need to find out from him what it is that he wants you and I to be as we conduct ourselves in this world unto his glory. Now, one of the things that I noticed about a disciple is that his primary ambition is to be like his master. Let me read these words from Jesus. They come from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher. The primary ambition of a disciple is to become Christ-like. Jesus said it in Luke as well, chapter 6 and verse 40. A pupil, a disciple, is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And in order for that to happen, folks, this is very critical, Christ needs to be the dominant influence in your life. It is Christ and his teaching that should shape your worldview. It is Christ and his teaching that should give you your values. It is Christ and his teaching that should set the parameters for your morality and your ethics. It's Christ and his teaching that should tell you what to accept and what to reject. It is Christ who's the dominant influence and the dominant example. We look to Christ and we look the way he lived life and we find lessons from the way he lived life and the things he did that should be that which should direct you and I. Can I give you, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, so let me give you one. There's more, but turn in, the Bible, in your Bible to John chapter 13. Just let me give you one of the examples. In John chapter 13, we have Christ washing the feet of his disciples. And in verse 14, it says, If I then, the teacher of the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should follow. 
also should do as I did to you. So what Christ, he's telling us is a primary principle when he washed the feet of his disciples. And by the way, one of those disciples was Judas, who moments from this time would betray him. And he washed his feet. Now what is he telling you and I? He's saying, it doesn't matter what position you have. It doesn't matter what title you have. It doesn't matter what authority you have. As a disciple of Christ, you are never above doing even the most menial task in the service of another person. This is what Christ wants from a disciple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25, he gives us this great example of how do you deal with being treated unjustly. And we see in that verse that Christ never retaliated against those who were hurling insults at him and abusing him, but rather the Bible says he kept and entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so Christ taught us a lesson that our never to take revenge that belongs to God because he's the only one in his holiness who can exercise revenge properly. You and I tend to get into the flesh. And so he says, you keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges rightly, who will make things all right. In Philippians chapter 2, in verses 5 through 8, we find the example that Paul tells us about in Christ, the example of his humility in pursuit of what is best for others. A humility that caused him to leave leave glory, heaven, to come to this earth and to live his life in submission to the will of his Father unto death. Another important lesson we get from the Word of God and the Gospels about being a true disciple is that you and I should never expect in this world to be treated any differently than our Lord was treated. In 1951, a bunch of evangelicals got together and they, they were pursuing this particular premise. How do we make the world like us more so that they would be receptive to our message? Now, I don't know why they did that because Christ had already put that to an end. In John chapter 15, 18 through 20, This is the words of Christ to his disciples. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this they hate you. Because of God's choice of you, taking you out of the world, you're in the world, but you're never of the world. James chapter 4, verse 4, says you... You cannot be a friend of this world. If you become a friend of this world, you become an enemy of God. Romans 12, 2 says, don't conform to this world. And all of these directives, all of these mandates are because Christ has chosen us for himself. What does that word world mean? When he says you are not of the world, that's why they hate you. He's not talking about the world of humanity in general. He's certainly not talking about the physical planet Earth. But rather, Christ is referring to that organized system of thought 
with its prevailing spiritual and mortal order that stands in opposition to God and his word and those who belong to him. It's that way of thinking that submerges from the fallen minds of people. It is manifested by flesh-driven worldviews, aberrant theological beliefs, and moral systems that accommodate for the indulgence of sinful appetites and sinful conduct. It is the philosophical, theological, and moral world whose God is Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Satan is the God of this world. It is that world, and I think I told you this when I was here with you once before, it is that world that gives all of its efforts to making sin normal and righteousness strange. That's the world. And Christ said, that world is going to hate you because you love me. That's why you should never expect a Christian pride parade in any of our major cities. That's never going to happen. You, who are believers, are the stone in the shoes of those who are of the world. You're actually an aggravation, if you will. You don't have to go out of your way. And by the way, don't ever do that. Don't ever go out of your way to aggravate unsaved people. It's not, you're, just, you're aggravating because you are who you are in Christ. Just that alone makes you aggravating. And people don't necessarily like you because you're saying things like there's moral absolutes and there's truth. There's some things that are immoral and some things that are moral and there's some things that you can rely upon and some things you can't. And so Christ said, look it, you're not going to be treated any different than I am by the world. Christ said also that you know a person's a disciple of Christ because he abides in his word. If you look in John chapter 8, John chapter 8 and verse 31, there there were some Jewish individuals who after witnessing the miracles of Jesus began to entertain and matter of fact even accept the notion that he probably is the Messiah. So they made a profession of faith at least at that level that Jesus was their long-anticipated Messiah. And Christ immediately begins to test their profession. Listen to these words. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Literally, in the original language, it goes like this. If you keep on continuously continuing in my teaching. In other words, this is your lifestyle. If this is your lifestyle of continually continuing in my teaching, complying with the directives that I have given to you, then you are my disciple. And... What does he say there next in verse 32? You will know the truth. And he doesn't mean just theoretically. You will know the truth experientially. The truth. Something our world says does not exist. Jesus says you will know it if you are his disciple. What is truth? Aletheia, 
The word in the Greek language means that which always corresponds with reality. That which is perpetually trustworthy. And that which is worthy of your confidence. Christ says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from not. From what? Not political freedom, not civil freedom. But if you read the text further, he's talking about a spiritual freedom a freedom from deception, a freedom from sin, if you abide in the teaching of Christ. Now, there's so many others, more than I could possibly cover this morning. Christ talked about the necessity of you and I as disciples to bear fruit in the 15th chapter of John, because to bear fruit means you're rightly connected to the vine. And what is fruit? It's all of those behavior patterns, all of those attitudes, all of the, that conduct that reflects your new life in Christ. It's, it's doing things like dedicating yourself to spiritual disciplines. You're in the Word. You value prayer. You value the worship of God's people, so you're there to make sure you do that. You are involved in gift-related service in the kingdom of God. And... You effectively go out and share the gospel with other people and you're willing to meet the needs of the needy. That's bearing fruit. And by the way, Jesus said in John 15 and verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Well, we could talk about his mandate to the church to love one another as evidence of being his disciple. But today what I want to concentrate, and you have the outline for in the rest of my message, by the way, that was all introduction. I don't know if they allow me to do part twos, but uh, when I was going through this, there was so much stuff. And there's a lot that I, I couldn't give you because I know unless they allow me to go on to two o'clock, we could just order some pizza and we'll just eat and learn at the same time. But there's one thing I want you to, to learn about this morning, and that is this, that Christ makes the point that those who are his genuine disciples love him supremely. All other loves in this world must be secondary to a genuine disciple because the one he loves the most is Christ. Now with that, take your Bible and now we'll spend a little time in Luke chapter 14, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 25. Before we look at that, I want to remind you that Christ was at one time asked this question, and he was asked this question by a legal expert, and the question is this, what is the greatest of all of the commands? Do you recall what he answered? There's 613 commands, but which one in the Old Testament? Don't feel bad for you New Testament believers. Uh, the Old Testament, they had 613. Don't feel bad. You have 1,150. Praise God. But the greatest commandment was this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You will love the Lord 
supremely above all other loves, and you will love the Lord comprehensively. Why? Because love for the Lord, listen to me, this is very important. I kind of mentioned it earlier. Love for the Lord is the catalyst for your obedience. That's why, that's what's got to compel you to obey the Lord. Not obligation. Matter of fact, love for the Lord takes burden and takes it and turns it into delight. That's why it says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because you love the Lord. This is very important. So in the text that will be the focus of the rest of this morning, we're going to examine what I consider to be some potential obstructions to loving the Lord supremely. What gets in the way? I want to do this. I I want Christ to be the possessor of my supreme affection. But what gets in the way? And Christ sort of mentioned them in this text, this text that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 14. He mentioned them indirectly by stating something very accurately and precisely. And so he's going to say the very first potential obstacle for having Christ as the primary possessor of your supreme affection is when you are governed, number one on your outline, by a greater love for valued earthly relationships. When you have a greater love, in other words, what really owns your heart is there are certain relationships, earthly relationships, that you have given your supreme affection, your supreme devotion your supreme dedication, and yes, indeed, even in some cases, your worship to an earthly person or earthly relationships. I want to draw your attention to verse 25 in Luke 14. He says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned, and he said to them, Now let me just stop you. The Bible's pretty accurate many times by giving you certain numbers. It'll say 3,000 came to know Christ on that day, or 5,000. Or you've heard of the feeding of the 5,000. By the way, if you read that text, it was the feeding of 5,000 men. If you add their wives and their children, it was more like the feeding of the 15,000, or maybe the 13,000. It was an incredible miracle. But the Bible is usually pretty precise with numbers. But when it says this, Large crowds were following him. It means thousands of people were pursuing Christ. And where is Christ going? He's making his way slowly, but in a dedicated fashion, to the city of Jerusalem. Because it would be in that city that he would surrender his life. He would give his life. And so these people are mindlessly following Christ perhaps because of a healing, because they knew someone who was healed by Christ, and they desired a healing. I don't blame them for that. Uh, Perhaps it was because of the food, (laughs) a free whopper and a whaler. I mean, that's pretty good. Instantly, miraculously. For people who who in those days only ate one good full meal a day, they were happy about that. By the way, I need to do that. Actually, I was thinking of not eating for one month, but I'd given up. 
fighting this diet thing is an amazing thing. As you get older, it's even worse. There's a lot of things I enjoy about getting older, though, um, especially with my memory. Uh, I get to meet new people all the time. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing in my life. Well, Pastor Jerry, we've known each other for 20 years. Really? I like that. I never get to see a rerun. Cindy will say, we've seen this already. I said, no. This. And we watch a lot of Hallmark movies, so they're all the same. And the thing I really enjoyed, I just recently did, you get to hide your own Easter eggs. I don't know where they're at till this day. No. So where was I? I was in the text. I don't know. I got... So this large crowd is following after Christ. You can be sure that many, many of them did not know them in the way that many of you do know him. Many of you here today know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Many of you here today have entrusted the salvation of your soul to Christ. But you can be sure that many of these people did not know Christ in this way. And then he does a startling thing. He turns... He turns. It's almost, um, it, it almost conveys the idea that he stopped the flow of the crowd. It's almost like he turned in this fashion. I can almost picture people bumping into each other because the parade had suddenly halted. And he turns and he says these words to him, to them. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. That's shocking words. I was preaching at a teen retreat one time, and a young man came to me, and he said, I was preaching on this text. He said, I'd make a great disciple. I hate my brother. I hate my sister. Started naming all of his family members. Is that what Christ is talking about? Was he trying to make that point? No, he's speaking in a hyperbolic way in order to make a point. And that point is when you hate in a Semitic sense, in a Hebraic sense, it was distinguishing or designating preference. It means I prefer this one to that one. That's what that word hate means. It means to love less. To love less. It is a unique way in the Jewish people that use that term because they were trying to confess that. Matter of fact, you know it from the scripture where in the scripture it says that God loved Jacob but he hated Esau, not necessarily because God felt this severe animosity toward Esau. But the word there is really trying to confess and convey to love less. So he's using the language of exaggerated contrast really to make the point that the supreme love of your life belongs to him. And all other loves are secondary. Put it this way. You put that 
flesh and blood relationship that you have as secondary to that great love that you have for Christ. I know that's what he means because otherwise God would be in contradiction with himself. Because he says in Deuteronomy that we ought to love our parents and obviously if you love your parents and honor your parents, you're loving them. In what way should I do that? He tells the husbands in Ephesians 5.25 that you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And the Bible says that the older women are to teach the younger women that they need to be husband lovers and child lovers or children lovers. As a matter of fact, God says we need to love one another and even more than that, he says to love your enemies. But of all of these, all of these that we are to love, only Christ is to possess our supreme affection. And the reason, now this is very important, the reason why this is so important is because the one who possesses your supreme affection directs and governs your life. Everybody in this auditorium does love something or someone supremely. If you're honest with yourself, everyone here loves something or someone supremely. And you know that that one that you love or that thing you love directs and governs your life. And there's only one sovereign Lord who has the right to do that. And so he says, you must love me supremely. One's loyalty to Jesus must come before his loyalty even to family and earthly relationships. And whenever our family comes in conflict with our Lord, our Lord dictates what we will do. I remember when my wife Cindy was saved about six months, and I was unsaved. I was not saved. In that. That actually, if you can picture this, I was a long-haired, uh, 1960 hippie rock and roll musician. You could be sure her parents were not happy that she picked me. Not until later. And she started, she came to know Christ and she started going to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings, Thursday mornings. And after I had come from playing at a nightclub, I walked in the door and I found her reading her Bible. So I walked up to her and I said, Cindy, do you love God more than me? She said yes. She said yes. And she said, because I love God supremely, I love you in a whole different way. It blew my mind. And she remained steadfast in that commitment. She loved the Lord. And you'll never guess what happened. I started wanting what she had. Her faithfulness to God began to be very attractive to me. But she was put in that place at that moment. Was she going to love her husband supremely? Or was she going to love the Lord supremely? So why is Christ making this an important reality? Because he knows that earthly relationships can possess your supreme affection 
And if they do, you will be set up for compromise. Loving earthly relationships more than our Lord is a pathway to apostasy. I have met many people who at one time showed an interest in the things of God, but they were drawn away. And guess, you'll never guess how it happened through relationships. It's interesting to me that the majority of people that come to know Christ come to know Christ through relationships. And many, many people who sort of walk away from Christ walk away from Christ because of relationships. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord told the nation of Israel, when you go into the promised land, you, you are not to give your sons and daughters to the people in Canaan. You are not to give them in marriage. You are not to make any covenants with them. And then the Lord gives the reason why. Because they will turn your love from me. And you will follow them. Take your Bible and don't lose your place in Matthew, but I've got to show you this and then we can move on to the next point. Christ says this very same thing, but in a different fashion. Matthew chapter 10, 34 through 39. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. By the way, there goes all my Christmas cards right out the earth. Do not think that I came, because I had a bunch of Christmas cards that say at the birth of Christ, peace on earth. He says, no, I didn't come to do that. We said, well, wait, wait, wait. Didn't the angels talk about that he was going to come and bring peace? Yeah, not between you and I and not between nations and nations, between sinful people and a holy God. That's why he came. So he said, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When I was in Illinois, I came across a man who was a principal of a Christian school. His name was Dr. Mahindra Sangal. He was raised as a Hindu, but then God gloriously saved this man. And I have a copy of his testimony, and I'm going to just share with you two paragraphs in that testimony. He shared this with me in person, but I thought this would be good for you to hear his words, so I'm quoting him. He says, I did not count the cost, which was to be paid for my devotion to Jesus. However, I expected rejection and humiliation from my friends and relatives. I even expected some mockery from some of them, but I was not ready for what came my way at my conversion. My own family disowned me, and I was no longer a part of the biological family in which I was born. End of quote. He told me later that they actually had an official Hindu funeral service for him, even though he was very much alive. What did Mahindra have to do in order to gain back the admiration and the love of his family? Easy. Just denounce and renounce his faith in Jesus and not love Jesus supremely, then he could go back to those relationships that he valued. Many 
former Muslims who have come to Christ will tell you that they have been treated in the same fashion. And all they have to do, really, to fix the problem is to give in and to love earthly people more than they love the Lord. Well, let's take a look at the second one. Do I still have some time today? I'm not even sure how much time I have, but I'll try to hurry this up. It's so great. Go back again to Luke 14. He says, you know what? You cannot have a greater love for your earthly life than your love for Christ. Did you notice at the end of verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean by that? Well, one of the best commentaries on the Bible is the Bible. And so what I'm going to do is have you turn in Revelation Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Revelation 12 and verse 10. And what happened here is Michael and his angels fought with Satan and his demons. Michael and his angels won, and Satan and his demons were tossed down to the earth. And there is a worship expression after this happened. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood and of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Now watch this. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. So in other words, loving the Lord supremely means I'm going to love him even more than self-preservation. If someone wants me to renounce my faith, I'd rather take the punishment of even perhaps losing my life than surrender Christ's position of the owner of my supreme affection. These people that he was writing about, John was writing about, were the tribulation saints. Many of them. Matter of fact, I, I sometimes think... Uh, I. I I don't believe this, but sometimes I think I wish I could be here for the tribulation. I happen to be one of those who believe the church won't be here for the tribulation. But if I could, I kind of would like it. You know why? I would love to see the church on earth in its purest form. <laughs> There's no nominal believers during the time of the great tribulation. These people will give their lives because they love Christ so much. Paul told the elders in Miletus, the elders from Ephesus, when they met him in Acts 20 and 24, he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord to testify solemnly for the gospel of grace. So Paul understood that what possessed his supreme affection was God even more than his life. And then and look at verse 27 of that 14th chapter. Let's go back again to that. And I'll have to cover this rather quickly. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does it mean to carry your own cross? 
In Luke 23, 9.23, he puts it this way. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does that mean to take up your cross? It's a metaphor for dying to self-will in order to embrace the will of God and its accomplishment no matter the personal cost. And that's something that you and I are supposed to do every day. We're to deny our own self-will so that we might achieve the purposes and the will of God in the context of this fallen earth. Number three, Christ must possess our supreme affection and we must not have a greater love for our earthly possessions. <laughs> Do you know what Christ just did? He just touched all the main issues of our life. Our relationships. Our life. The freedom of self-governance. And now he's going to touch our stuff. This may be where we draw the line. Cindy and I were talking about them, about your community, but in our community, they're building all of these storage buildings. They're all over the place. I mean, you could find more storage buildings than you can find McDonald's in our community. You know what that means? That means that we Americans have so much stuff, we can't fit it into our houses, and we have to rent other places for our stuff. And it's interesting to me that Christ says, you must love me more than the stuff. He gives a couple of illustrations. Verse 28, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he's not able to finish. All who observe begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. So in other words, his unfinished product is a testimony that he did not count the cost. He dug the foundation, he started putting up a few pieces of wood, and he ran out of material. And so from now on, when people pass that unfinished project, the testimony is this, he did not count the cost before he jumped. Same thing in the next illustration. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming against him with 20,000. That's pretty obvious. Isn't it pretty obvious? It's a double army. It's more than yours. I'm going to have to figure out what to do here. I am going to have to count the costs. Verse 32. Or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. That's what I would do in counting the cost. What Christ is asking this mindless crowd to do is count the cost. You're going to have to love me more than you love all of your earthly relationships that you value. You're going to have to love me more than life itself. You're going to have to love me more than doing your own will. And you're going to have to love me more than the things you possess, the temporal things that you possess in this earth. Look at verse 33. So then. Do you know what that word so then means in the Greek? So then. In other words, it means I'm going to call you back to what I just said. 
So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. In other words, if need be, if a situation arises in which your dedication to Christ is put in contrast with the possessions of what you own, you're to choose him. Many of these Jewish people, keep in mind the majority of them, these are Jewish people. And uh, the Pharisees made a law that if anybody confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, they would be put out of the synagogue. And if to be put out of the synagogue meant that you were separated from the community, you were excommunicated. And many of you were even separated from your families. It, it was a heavy cost to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And many of them even lost their inheritance because they confessed Jesus. And some of them even lost their actual physical possessions. Matter of fact, if you will, take a look in Hebrews chapter 10 quickly. Hebrews chapter 10. If you were in John chapter 10, you were lost just like me. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10, 32. He says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict. This is a Jewish audience he's writing to. Great conflict and suffering, partly by being made a spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. And you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you for yourself have a better possession, a lasting one. And so there may be times when you are called upon to give up your earthly treasures. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong for Christians to own things. But the Bible does say it's wrong for things to own Christians. Because the one who owns you is the one who paid the price for you to redeem you. He owns you and not the things of the world. And then he finishes with this illustration there again in Luke 14 at the end, 34 and 35. Just a quick illustration. He says, their fault is, salt is good, but even salt has, even if, wait, but even salt has become tasteless, what good will it be seasoned? Let me read that again. (laughs) That's the other thing that is going is, Two things are going is my ears and my eyes. My wife says things to me about my hearing. I don't know what's happened to her, but we're married for 53 years. She sure does grumble or mumble a lot, I think. Is that what it is? No. All right, let me go back to that one again. Therefore, salt is good. There we go. But even salt has become tasteless. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The person who has the ears to hear is the regenerated person. The natural man does not comprehend these things, doesn't know how to comprehend these things. But what is he trying to get across? The salt that they used in that time was not very pure, and it was possible for the sodium chloride to leach out of it, leaving a residue that was completely 
useless. And the point that Christ is making here is that if salt loses its ability to carry out its purpose, and what is its purpose? The purpose of salt was to season food, to prevent meat from decaying. Matter of fact, salt was used to slow down the decay. And the point that Christ is making here is if you don't abide by these requirements of who owns his supreme affection, you are like useless salt to the kingdom of God. Well, there's one other requirement. I'll just briefly mention it to you. You'll find it in John chapter 12, and that is this, that you must love Christ more than the approval of people. It's a big one. You must love Christ more than the approval of people. In John chapter 12, John tells us why so many people Jews were rejecting him as he records the words of Christ. I want to pick it up at verse 36. He says, While you have light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. So Christ gave testimony to his identity through the miracles that he performed. And then this 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, the arm of the Lord is referring to the power of God, and it's the power of God that was seen in Christ during the time of his earthly ministry. He showed that he had power over disease. He showed that he had power over demons. He showed that he had power over nature. He showed he had power over death. Lazarus, come out. And he came out. So the Jews had seen the arm of the Lord, and yet they would not believe in him. And so the condemnation of God upon them for that is now they could not believe in him. They would not, now they could not. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah says again, quoting Isaiah 6 and verse 10, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, he saw the holiness of God, and he spoke to him. Nevertheless, and here's a few exceptions, many, even of the rulers, the people from the Sanhedrin, the main council in Israel, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. But here's the real reason, verse 43. What was the possessor of their supreme affection? For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The word approval there is the translation of the Greek word doxa, glory. It's a word that is defined by its context. When it's talking about the Lord, it's talking about the elevation 
of the, the character of God in a positive way that stimulates reverence and respect and honor. But sometimes it's here to, to mean approval or the honor. And what he is saying is these members of the Sanhedrin thought it was too much, too much of a personal cost to go public with Jesus. They'd be kicked out of, certainly off the Sanhedrin. They would be tossed out of the synagogue. They would be tossed from the community. So what did they love the most? They loved the approval of people. I remember once when I was in youth ministry, and I will close with this. A lot of times when ministers say they'll close with this, there's like three or four other things they close with. I won't do that with you. When I was in youth ministry, a young boy named Billy called me and he said, Pastor Jerry, I've got some great ideas for the youth ministry, things that will really make youth ministry better. So I said, great, Billy, let me meet with you. So we, we met in a McDonald's, which is not normally the place that I go to eat. Matter of fact, when I eat at McDonald's, I need to tell you something. I don't pray a prayer of thanksgiving for the food because I don't think God had anything to do with that. I know I probably just turned off a number of you, but that in White Castles, I never pray. But I was with Billy, and Billy said to me uh, all these ideas he had, and he was real excited, and he was getting more and more excited in the passing of the moment. But then another teenager walked in and was ordering food, and I could see he caught Billy's eye. And Billy was sort of like now very quiet and kept on looking over, kept on looking over. And then uh, finally, to his chagrin, this young man who just ordered his food turned and looked and saw Billy sitting with me. And he walked toward us. And now Billy is like sweating profusely, trying to figure out what's going on. Are you sick or what? And this young man comes up and says, hey, Bill, how are you doing? Fine, fine, very good, fine. You have kind of brief answers. He said, hey, man, is it true? that last Saturday they had to carry you out of the party because you were so drunk? And, uh, uh, party? Uh, I'm, I'm. He's trying to get this kid to go away. What are you talking about? And so finally the guy reaches over and he said, who's this? He thought he was maybe my, his dad, which was an insult in those days, but uh, I'll take it. He said, who's this? And Bill, with great courage, said, he's my youth pastor. My what? Youth pastor. Did you say youth pastor? And he said, yeah. Then the kid said this, Billy, are you a Christian? Billy said, yes. And the other kid said, no kidding, so am I. And I said, oh, Jesus, come now. Take me. I'm failing. See, Billy... Love the approval of people more than he loved the approval of God. It happens to us all. This is why some of us are secret agents for the Lord. We're going to win everybody at work to Christ without ever telling them we're Christians. I need to tell you something. Christianity is not to be hidden. People need to know, if they think you're a good moral person, don't rob God of his glory. Tell them why you're a good moral person. 
is not because of you, you would not be a good moral person. But it's because of Christ and the transformation he made in your life. So let me ask you this in conclusion, and I really mean conclusion. Who is the possessor of your supreme affection? Do you love the Lord more, more than even earthly relationships? Are they secondary? Do you love the Lord more than your own life? Do you love the Lord more than doing your own will, setting your own will aside to do His? Do you love the Lord more than you love your stuff? And do you love the approval of God more than the approval of people? I pray that God will help you understand that he made you a disciple so that you could bring glory to him. He made you a disciple so that you could love him. He made you a disciple so that you could show the transformation he makes in people's lives. Thank you for putting up with my ranting and raving for all of this time. I don't know how much time I had, so I took all the time I got. <laughs> Let's pray together. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word. We te thank you for the conviction of your word. May it be used today in our lives so that we would love you the most. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.